The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So what a wonderful thing for a group of people to do to have an evening like this and uh, just to be reflecting together about this very common experience of unpleasantness. And uh, just doing that is it's pretty radical to make it a topic of conversation and not to pathologize unpleasantness. It's obviously a huge part of life. And not just, I mean, clearly can be a really negative part of life, a cause for real suffering. But there's a lot of, I don't know what the right word is, but it has it adds value, you know, the experience of unpleasantness. Life wouldn't be life without unpleasantness. It just it would be something else altogether. So to have that kind of interest and uh open mindedness about it. And the other basic principle for this study we'll be doing for the next few weeks or forever is uh, um, not to immediately want to learn your lessons in the places where there where the unpleasantness is most intense. Like, oh yeah, let me go there. If this is, you know, what the Buddha says is true, it should be true here. And we're not willing to uh, gain confidence and gain understanding in the very ordinary experiences of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality. Because it's really a shift in understanding and when we immediately turn to the places that are most scary or most unpleasant, there's a real tendency, you know, the triggers there, the pain, the intensity of pain is going to be very seductive. It's going to trigger a lot of the conditioned Condition mind habit energy to want to deny it or want to hide from it. This is what Bhikkhu Bodhi says in his wonderful little book, The Noble Eightfold Path, in the, the section about mindfulness. He says, but the link between feelings and defilements is not a necessary one. Pleasure does not always have to lead to greed, pain to aversion, neutral feeling to delusion. The tie between them can be snapped, and one essential means for snapping it is mindfulness. Feeling will stir up a defilement only when it is not noticed, when it is indulged rather than observed. By turning it into an object of observation, mindfulness diffuses the feeling so that it cannot provoke an unwholesome response. Then, instead of relating to the feeling by way of habit, through attachment, repulsion, or apathy, apathy for neutral, by way of habit, um, we relate by way of contemplation, using the feeling as a springboard for understanding the nature of experience. In the early stages of contemplation of feeling, the early stages of the contemplation of feeling involves attending to the arisen feeling 
noting their distinctive qualities, pleasant, painful, neutral. The feeling is noted without identifying with it, without taking it to be I or mine or something happening to me. You see, that isn't something that we have to get philosophically clear about. Oh yeah, it's not me. It seems like the work would be like getting it philosophically right. Oh yeah, that the pain I'm feeling now is not me. But it's all about being mindful. When we're mindful of the feeling, then we're not going to personalize it. So instead of the mind thinking, oh, I shouldn't personalize this feeling, it's much more efficient just to be interested in the feeling. Because to the degree the mind is 100% open, aware of it, then it's 100% not thinking anything about the feeling, not constructing anything about the feeling. So intimacy, being present, mindfully aware, uh, prevents any kind of reactive habit, no matter how strong the habit might be to react to pain. And some of you know this, and I think we've even talked about it in this class, but like when we're deep in a sit and we've got, the mind has gotten pretty settled and, you know, the body starts to hurt after sitting for a while, that the mind's really settled. So naturally the unpleasant sensations become the object of meditation and there's real steadiness with that and the mind because of that steadiness is intimate with the sensations which are unpleasant and then if that continuity of awareness that intimacy gets interrupted then very quickly the mind can become very reactive to the unpleasant sensation so even though you might have had many many moments minutes even of being really, a sense of being really settled, really calm, and even pleasantly, the mind in a pleasant state, even though the object of awareness is unpleasantness, like the body being in pain, because you've been sitting a long time, for example, the knees hurting or the back aching. But there's real stable, a real stability, and that stability of mind is pleasant, the samadhi is pleasant, even though the object is unpleasant. <clears throat> But as soon as that continuity of awareness is broken, interrupted, then it can feel immediately unbearable, like to be there with the body. Like I gotta get, I gotta move, or I gotta stop the sit, or this is too much. And it's really useful to wonder about what just happened, because not only was it workable a moment but it actually felt really good. Like the mind was learning something, and it was really stable, and there was a sense of everything being held, the, the practice itself being held in the samadhi, in the balance. And then all, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. And, uh, and when we understand what just happened, then we might have the willingness to not believe the catastrophizing of the mind, the thinking mind, and just do what we did before, which is connect and sustain with real interest, not with aversion, but with interest, a willingness to be intimate, 
And then we might, the samadhi, especially if we hasn't been that interrupted for that long, it might reemerge. The balance might come back into balance. And then all of a sudden, a moment earlier, like I said, all hell had broken loose. The mind was catastrophizing. It seemed literally, clearly, you know, like the rational mind thought, this is clearly not workable. This is too much. I need to break my samadhi and move my body. Or I need to, you know, fantasize about I've got to do something to get away from this intolerable pain that I'm in. Being intimate with it doesn't make any sense, except if we've done that, had that happen enough times, we know we can go in and out. And it's especially useful if you're in a sit with a lot of other people and you have some pride and you don't want to move your body or you just literally can't move your body because you're not supposed to or whatever the setting might be, it's really useful to be able to come back into that experience and to lose it and to come back and to lose it because we learned so much about this teaching on the second arrow. And we'll look at that sutta later tonight. So just to continue this piece from Bhikkhu Bodhi, awareness is kept at a level of bare attention. One watches each feeling that arises, seeing it as merely a feeling, a bare mental event shorn of all subjective references, all pointers to an ego. Now that sounds complex, but it just means being mindful of the painful sensation. To the degree that that mindfulness is full or whole, then there's no egoic activity going on, no thinking of that feeling happening to me, or why me, or how can I get rid of it. The task is simply to note the feeling's quality, the tone of pleasure, pain, or neutrality. But as practice advances, as one goes on noting each feeling, letting it go, and noting the next, the focus of attention shifts from the qualities of feelings to the process of feeling itself. The process reveals a ceaseless flux of feeling, arising and dissolving, succeeding one another without a halt. Within the process there is nothing lasting. Feeling itself is only a stream of events, occasions of feeling flashing into being moment by moment, dissolving as soon as they arise. Thus begins uh, insight into impermanence, which, as it evolves, overturns three unwholesome roots. There is no greed for pleasant feelings, no aversion for painful feelings, no delusion over neutral feelings. All are seen as merely fleeting and substanceless events devoid of any true enjoyment or basis for involvement. So, first we need samadhi, some stability of mind, so as painful sensations arise, the first um, work of wisdom is not to be confused by the impulse to react to the painful sensations. Now, you could say the same for the pleasant and neutral, but let's just talk about painful sensations tonight. So, the first thing wisdom has to do is The impulse to react to pain 
it's just going to arise. That's nature. It's not your fault that you want to, the mind wants to back away or the mind wants to go to pleasant when there's something painful going on. But when there's enough samadhi, enough stability, then it's like instead of taking the bait to react to the pain, samadhi says, you know what, I think it's okay just to remain in this balanced, stable place. And the activity of letting things be instead of the activity of moving, doing, fixing, changing. So, you know, samadhi is really this refuge in the knowing, the stability of knowing, and not, you know, really by definition, not getting pushed around by the conditions that are coming and going, the experiences that are coming and going. So first the samadhi knows, I don't have to believe, I don't need to take up the reactive patterns. Right? And then, without that, there's no getting intimate with feeling tone. So first we have to not believe the reactive pattern, that that's me, or that that has to be followed. And then we can be right there, feeling tone. It's just this unpleasantness. And we're learning, we're practicing here, not like the reality that feeling is is a flow. It's an activity of nature. It's not self. And that, that as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, that just begins to reveal these three characteristics. You know, that it's not personal, that it's changing, that, like I mentioned before, any personal personalizing of the feeling is the second arrow immediately. It starts to hurt. And as we personalize feeling, it hurts. And then like Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the more we see these underlying the underlying nature of feeling, which we, we have to see for everything in the field of experience, that it's changing, it's processed, it's ultimately unsatisfactory because because it's ephemeral, it's not going to create any lasting ground in a way that we might think we need. I don't like this. I want this. And it's not personal. So the more we kind of get this underlying nature, then greed doesn't make sense. Greed to pleasant doesn't make sense. And aversion to unpleasant doesn't make sense. And ignoring neutral doesn't make sense. And it's not because, again, philosophically, it makes sense to us that grasping doesn't make sense. It's, it happens at an elemental level. The not reacting to pleasant, not reacting to unpleasant, not reacting to neutral is the natural response, the unavoidable response when the mind understands the ephemeral nature of feeling. That feeling is a natural changing process. I like the image, some of you know, of ice. You know, when water is about to turn to ice, this amazing molecular thing happens. And it turns out that there's this expansion, right? So that's why rocks that are buried deep in the ground over time, because of year after year, frost heaves, they work their way to the surface. And why, you know, you get that amazing crunching sound on Lake Superior when you're there at the right time. 
and the legs freezing over. And all other, you know, ways that, you know, ice can break away rocks because there's some water in a crevice of a rock and then overnight it freezes. And it might only be a little bit of water. But because this is a natural thing, there's nothing in the universe that can stop that water from expanding. It's going to expand. And if that expansion means it's going to crack open a you know multi-ton piece of stone, it will do that. And it's a little bit like insight, too. Like when the conditions are there, then the shift happens. When we see, because we've, we have enough samadhi, enough willingness to be with unpleasant, not confused by the react, the reactive habits to go away from unpleasantness, right there with it, and the mind begins to, in a sense, collect data that unpleasantness is just that, just that unpleasant condition being known. And then the, the underlying habit to be afraid of unpleasantness is that insight, there's a little seismic shift, like maybe unpleasantness isn't dangerous. You know, in our conditioned realm, how we're conditioned, unpleasantness is definitely dangerous, it's bad. Our whole life, in a way, is driven by our habits around pleasant and unpleasant, get pleasant, get rid of unpleasant. But each time we see this a little bit more, it shifts. So that the next time unpleasantness arises, there's all that habit energy with whatever momentum it has, but there's something new there. Call it like the space of wisdom. Yeah, it's unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. It's been unpleasant before. It will be unpleasant again in the future. And I don't have to get all worked up. I don't have to... I have this option of non-reaction. Before any insight, there's no option of non-reaction. To whatever degree the system can react, it will react. But the, with more and more insight, you know, I'm called. I could go get got, go downstairs and get a sweater. But I think I'll just be okay with that. You know, I'm feeling really sad. I could call a friend. I could see what's on TV, but I'm okay with the unpleasantness of the sadness. You know, an old painful memory comes. I could write a letter to finally get even with the person who hurt my feelings. You know, or I could just feel, I know, it's like I can be with that burning feeling of something being unresolved or pain of betrayal or whatever it might be. These last two sentences again. There is no greed for pleasant feelings, no aversion for painful feelings, no delusion over neutral feelings. All are seen as merely fleeting and substanceless events, devoid of any true enjoyment or basis for involvement. And the thing is, when feeling arises, 
you know, boy, does that seem untrue. It seems so substantial. And the question is, are you going to believe that initial appearance of having pain in your knee or having emotional pain? Or are you going to be willing to actually investigate? Okay. It seems like a problem for me, but I'm not going to believe that because that's the initial perception of this painful feeling, emotional or physical feeling. Appears to be really dangerous or a real problem for me. So we stabilize any way that we can with the painful feeling or with some other object and then we practice including it to directly, immediately investigate. Is it in fact a problem? The only way we know if pain is a personal problem is we have to be intimate with it. How else are we going to know if it's going to kill us or cause lasting harm? But we, ha- we actually have to be interested in it. And the thing about this is because there's something that can masquerade as good practice, this, you know, what we say sometimes is tolerating pain or learning to bear with it, um, having a higher pain tolerance. Sometimes I've talked to people about this because you always hear, you know, even now I find myself thinking this way now that I'm a little bit older, you know, back when I was young, you know, I had to walk to school, you know, I had to walk that three quarters of a mile to my school. Now all the kids get bust, you know, and back then the snow was really high and all the those sort of things. And then my parents would say, you know, back then <laughs> they grew up in farms. There are times that I'm not kidding, they my grandmother used to bake potatoes in the morning and then they'd put the baked potatoes in their coat pockets to keep them warm and then they'd eat the baked potato for lunch. They're out in the plains in North Dakota. And, you know, sometimes those blizzards were really bad. You know, they barely find their way because the roads get sort of swept over with drifts. And so there's a certain, uh, I don't know, value we seem to have. Like we're impressed by people who, you know, can walk barefoot on sharp stones or whatever it is. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you must, as if there's some, wisdom and being able to tolerate pain and it's it's clearly a skill you know it's useful to be able to tolerate pain but in our sitting practice it's a low level skill like the if all we're doing over the months or years of practice is learning to tolerate a lot of pain like how to look like we're not really suffering you see this it It is, I, I don't recommend doing it all the time, of course, but it is useful, especially if you're in my position, where you can actually see people's faces, but to open your eyes and look around. And, you know, you, it's just amazing what you see. <laughs> Between the, the nodding off and the, it's like how tight our bodies are at times, and of course we're unaware of it. Often it's because we're lost in thought, and the thought involves a lot of tension, and then that gets expressed in the body. But we're not here just to tolerate pain. So that there's no value, intrinsic value in learning to tolerate pain, except that it can 
helped you a little bit in life, but things are painful. The real value is the transformation of understanding, like what the mind takes pain and pleasure to be. We're really interested in the transformation of understanding, or some ways, some places we talk about this in the tradition as the purification of view, like the view we have, the mostly unquestioned view we have that pleasure is good, intrinsically good, and pain is intrinsically bad. And what we're discovering, no, actually, pain is just pain. It has no intrinsic value, positive or negative. It's just what it is. It's just that, those sensations being known. And like I mentioned earlier, it's really interesting to look at um, what is painful sensation when we're intimate with it. And you really see that it's just sensation. It may be intense, like it might have a lot of juice or a lot of charisma in our experience. You know, when there's a lot of pain, it calls the attention because of that intensity or that charisma, that look at me, look at me, part of it. But when we actually open to it, it's much more about what the mind brings to it than what's actually there. And the funny story that gets told a lot is Ajahn Chah's story about uh, meditating out in uh, near a village in Thailand when he was before he became really famous. But he was well loved by the village people, you know, and the nuns and monks, they'd have their little camp, you know, their little lot with a mosquito net, maybe even a platform or just some grass under a tree or a little platform. And close enough to the village that it was easy to walk in and get food and get secluded or not. But anyway, um, some of you know in Asia there, they seem to like the blast music and a lot of the public buildings and temples and other institutions, businesses have these loudspeakers on their roofs of the building. And so whenever it's a festival day or for no reason whatsoever, um, they just blast music and the temples blast chanting and the other sort of non-religious organization blasts whatever they want to blast. And uh, so anyway, he was sitting meditating at night and having a lot of problems. Like, I know they care about me, but why would they be blasting this music? They know I'm out here meditating. What what are they thinking? And, you know, just the mind proliferating and I should go to another place. These people don't really respect what I'm doing here. If they did, they wouldn't be blasting that music. And how am I supposed to... And then the insight, as he describes it, is recognizing what's actually happening. Because the story we tell ourselves is that it's not even that that music is coming in and bothering us. It's actually the lack of consideration of those people, the meanness, the ignorance of those people. It's as if we imagine, it really seems as if that's coming in and poking at me. They're in consideration, that terrible music. And it's like, 
but what he the insight that he had was actually it was it was the habits of his mind that was going out to the music and attacking it right it was his mind that was doing the attacking not the music the sound was just the sound but what was the mind doing with it and that's the interesting thing about uh, that's the second arrow right when we start to notice what the mind does based on the conditioned habit to see something as pleasant to see something as unpleasant to see something as neutral there are all these deep habits that we've been talking about This is from um, Venerable Analeo's book. And again, it's a really great book for these uh, several of these Buddhist studies. So in the summer, we did mindfulness of body. Now we're doing mindfulness of feeling. In the winter, mindfulness of the mind. And in the spring, mindfulness of dhammas, the mind objects or the maps of the mind. And a book that's quite good, especially for those of you who have a, a bit of an academic bent and want to dig in more of the technical definitions that go behind the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness, get a hold of Venerable Analeo's book called Satipatthana. And this is coming from his chapter on feeling. And this will lead into us looking at this sutta on the second dart. Hopefully some of you had a chance to read it this last week. He says, The experience of unpleasant feelings can activate the latent tendency the irritation, and lead to attempts to repress or avoid such unpleasant feelings. Moreover, aversion to pain can, according to the Buddha's, the Buddha's penetrating analysis, fuel the tendency to seek sensual gratification, since from the unawakened point of view, the enjoyment of sense pleasures appears to be the only way to escape from pain. So when we go home after a difficult day, and we're feeling the reverberations of whatever difficulties that were there that day, what do we do? We look for something pleasant. Pleasant something on the internet, pleasant, you know, conversation, pleasant food, or pleasant oblivion in our bed. But that's how we manage pain. And it's a very interesting dynamic that the sutta on the two-second arrow really points out. This creates a vicious circle in which, with each experience of feeling, pleasant or unpleasant, the bondage to feeling increases. Right? So it creates a feedback loop. The way out of this vicious circle lies in mindful and sober observation of unpleasant feelings. Such non-reactive awareness of pain is simply is simple but effect is a simple but effective method for skillfully handling a painful experience. Simply observing physical pain for what it is prevents it from producing mental repercussions. Any mental reaction of fear or resistance to pain would only increase the degree of unpleasantness of the painful experience. An accomplished meditator might be able to experience solely the physical aspect of the unpleasant feeling, 
without allowing mental reactions to arise. Thus, meditative skill and insight have an intriguing potential for preventing physical sickness from uh, affecting the mind. And the Buddha even says that specifically. He says, you may be sick in the body, but not sick in the mind. You may be dying, the body may be dying with racking pain, but the mind doesn't need to be reflecting or reacting. You know, and some people in this room have gone to the dentist, maybe for other reasons, but, you know, and not use Novocaine or not use some other pain medicine. And the interesting edge is like how to be there with the pain without adding anything else. And again, instead of that being a philosophical move, like, I really don't need to add anything. Don't add anything, Mark. Don't react. It's really about giving yourself, the mind giving itself to the pain. If it's giving itself to being aware of the pain 100%, then there's no space in the mind for reaction, for having the thought, this is too much, this is not okay. And it doesn't mean even that there isn't flinching, like if you have physical pain. Because some of that may not arise from a mental reaction. It might arise from, you know, just the nerves doing what they're conditioned to do. But the mind isn't constructing a somebody who has a problem with the unpleasantness. So let's turn to that discourse on the second arrow. Well, one last point I wanted to make about this, you know, not just bearing with pain. Because there, even in the, you know, in, all, in a lot of spiritual circles, there's a certain sense, we even use it sometimes in a sit, someone, someone would say something like, oh yeah, I was really unpleasant, I was burning up karma. You know, so we're like, the, uh, like, whatever's showing up for us is really difficult. And it's like that karma was set in motion somehow before, and now it's the fruit of that karma is showing up in our life as these difficult circumstances or difficult sensations. And I'm burning it, I'm burning it up by not continuing the pattern of reacting to it. And so there's some truth to that, but the Buddha made a point that is very sobering. And that's the right thing to do. Like when difficult circumstances show up, it is true that at the very least what we'd like to do is not react to the difficult circumstances that set in motion more difficult circumstances that are going to show up later. But the point the Buddha makes here is that each of us were trailing behind an infinite amount of unfinished karmic business. So we don't get to the end by burning it up. We just get through that particular thing that's arising in our life right now. You know, there are a lot of difficult people in your life that are pushing your buttons. There are, you have a lot of physical pain or, you know, there's a lot of insecurity that's just happening in your life for some reason. And, you know, the practice is 
not to react, but not, but not to be content with the non-reaction. The non-reaction supports insight because we'll never, there's no end to not reacting to the difficult circumstances. So we, whether that's true or not, I mean, I don't know. I can't see how much karma I'm dragging behind me. But I know that having that information, you know, that point of view from the Buddha, then inspires kind of interest, not just to tolerate the difficult circumstances that arise and be patient with them, but to actually investigate the underlying nature of what I'm calling an unpleasant condition or a a difficult circumstance. To really see it's changing in a personal nature. So then, it doesn't matter if there's an infinite amount of unfinished business that somehow is trailing behind me. Because it doesn't land anywhere. Some of you remember the the discourse about the, the simile of the salt and the it's about the ripening of karma. If we have, if not we, but if somehow things have been set in motion that are going to express themselves in this life. And remember, don't misunderstand karma Karma, and think that I did that so I have to get the result. Karma says that when when something's been set in motion, it will express that motion, right? Because it's in motion. There's already a momentum. And so some of the things that are expressing themselves in my life might be related to what I did in this lifetime earlier, might be related to the fact that I'm living in this culture and receiving the karmic fruits of this culture or this planet or, you know, there are so many interdependent uh, natural unfoldings going on here that I'm sensitive to. None of it is personal. Even like what I did when I hit my brother or when I made fun of my brother, you know, and I think of those times as being karmically impactful. Even that wasn't me. It was just those causes and conditions. Part of those causes and conditions is me thinking that was me. But those were just that, and then that lives on as a force. But none of it's personal. And we want to have a sense that I'm not just learning how to be with unpleasantness. I'm learning how to be with unpleasantness, intimate with pleasantness, intimate with neutrality, in order to transform the understanding, what the mind habitually takes feeling to be, so that the mind becomes liberated from feeling. That one of the ways it's translated is disjoint. So feeling is just feeling, but whatever the heart or mind is, it's not joined, it's not pushed around by feeling. It gives you a sense, like when we think of somebody who's fully awake, it gives you a sense of how radical that reality must be. Somebody 
lose. And we know it in ourselves. Like when we're really tired and, uh, you know, too many things have happened too fast. And so, you know how we get revert to our more primitive conditioning. Then everything bothers us. And we want every pleasant thing, you know. Somebody has something we want that we need that. And it's like we really become reactive, get pushed around a lot. And then there are other times in life, in our lives when we have a lot more space, and a lot more equanimity, and somebody could be coming with a beautiful scarf or a beautiful cell phone. And there's, it doesn't like, it doesn't make up any reverberation in our mind at all. Because we're not needy, we're content. The mind is stable. Or difficult things happen, it's okay, it's too hot in the room or something like that. And we're okay with it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Are the windows open? enough. Okay, let's go to the sutta and then uh, time, a little time for comments. So I think I sent this out last week. And there's a lot, you know, most of you know the story of the second arrow, you know, <clears throat> when a pleasant or when an unpleasant feeling arises, if we react, it's like shooting a second arrow. But there's a lot in this discourse, so I encourage you to read it. I won't be able to go through it in too much detail. But basically, it starts like several of the Buddha's discourses start where he asks a question. And often the question is something like, what's the difference between an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill mill person, right, when they feel a pleasant feeling, an unpleasant feeling, a neutral feeling, versus a wise, enlightened being? So what's the difference, right? And uh, then the people there, they say, well, it would be better for you to answer your own question and we'll really listen. And so the Buddha says, okay, make sure you listen. And then he answers the question. He says, when touched with the feeling of pain, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats their breasts, becomes distraught. So such a person feels two pains, physical and mental. Assuming the first unpleasant thing was physical, you feel that, and then you feel the unpleasantness of the mental reaction physical and mental, just as if one were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot one with another arrow so that they would feel the pain of two arrows, the pains of two arrows. And then later in this, the Buddha says, as if a person is touched by that painful feeling, as a person is touched by that painful feeling, they are resistant. Right? So that's the natural thing for a run-of-the-mill, ordinary person like ourselves. We're touched by a painful feeling. We resist any resistance obsession. And so there's the resistance, and then there's the mental proliferation. So that the way that Ajahn Tanisaro translates that resistance obsession, that's that feedback loop where the thought, when I'm obsessing about the pain, is triggers more painful sensation, or more the feeling tone of pain, because that's what it does. And then that painful feeling triggers more thinking. So that's that dance that it's called here resistance obsession. Any resistance obsession with regard to that painful feeling obsesses one, 
touched by that painful feeling, one delights in sensual pleasures. Why is that? Because the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person does not discern any escape from painful feeling aside from sensual pleasures. And so you see, because we have a, a lot of residual unpleasantness in our lives that remains unaddressed with wisdom, we're really susceptible to new catalogs that show up in the mail. Because on the surface, it's relatively pleasant to imagine getting some of those things. But he says, as one is delighting in central pleasures, right? so just imagine you're delighting in the relative pleasantness of looking through a catalog, imagining having some of those things, what would be nice, what would you do with it. As one is delighting in central pleasure, any passion obsession, right? The thinking, oh, that would be nice, and the pleasantness that you derive from that thinking, that imagining, and then more thinking and more pleasantness. Any passion obsession with regard to that pleasant feeling obsesses one. Right? That doesn't sound pleasant. It isn't. It's a second arrow. The Buddha says, they do not discern, as it actually is present, the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawback, or escape from that feeling. Right? So the mind is unaware of all the subtlety that's going on as it's involved in that pleasant, that pleasure obsession. Isn't that true? That's why we can stay there for such a long time. We don't see what's getting set in motion. We don't see the underlying dynamic. And then the Buddha says, as they do not discern all of that subtle stuff, then any ignorance obsession, right? So then the mind is caught, actually stressfully caught, in not being aware. Not being aware is also stressful. Being caught in that uh, resistance obsession, the passion obsession, and ignorance obsession with regard to that feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, that also obsesses one. So what the Buddha is doing in this discourse is he's tying the three feelings together. You know, starting with the unpleasant, triggering the desire for pleasant. When we're obsessing with the pleasant, we don't want to notice the subtle, right? Because it gets in the way of whatever juiciness we can get by obsessing with what they call the passion obsession, right? It depends on not looking too closely at what we're doing, whatever it is. Even when you're watching a show, how many of you have been in the middle of a show trying to be lost in it, to be absorbed in it, trying to enjoy it, and at some point, it's a tipping point. It's just so bad that you can no longer convince yourself that it's pleasant, right? And you have to just shut it off. And you know how disappointing it is? Because the moment before the tipping point, it was like you were completely unaware how bad it was. But then at some point, it was just too stressful to remain unaware, right? And so this is like, that subtlety, when it's subtle, it's neutral. It's not, you know, most neutral experiences aren't actually neutral. They're just too subtle for the mind, the grossness of the mind, to know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So that's why the mind sees it as not worthy of noticing. 
So for that first 45 minutes we were watching the show, there was this neutral experience because, by definition, the mind didn't think it needed to pay attention to it. That's the definition of neutrality. Like, are you crazy watching this show? Right? That just doesn't get in there because it's not strong enough. It's neutral. It's not breaking through the mind into sort of awareness. And that, the not noticing that, you know, kind of wise but subtle voice of wisdom, that, that ignorant, they call it the, uh, Buddha calls it the ignorance obsession. That is also stressful to remain unaware. And so, that's the worldly one. And then the Buddha goes on to talk about the other. Now, the other is pretty obvious because it's just not doing that, basically. <clears throat> As one is touched by that painful feeling, one does not, one is not resistant. No resistance obsession with regard to that painful feeling obsesses one. Touched by that painful feeling, one does not delight in sensual pleasure. Why not? Because the well-instructed disciple of the Noble One discerns an escape from painful feeling aside from sensual pleasure. So what's the escape? To be, first and foremost, just the willingness to be intimate with the pain. Because when we're fully intimate with the pain, resistance and reactivity falls away. Because if you're 100% intimate, there's no space for reactivity. And then with insight, with the development of insight, it's not even the full presence, it's the mind understands that that unpleasantness is not self. It's ephemeral. It's not worthy of grasping. And so it has a more powerful immunity. It doesn't depend on samadhi, the being 100% with the unpleasantness to be free of pain or to be free of the reactivity because now wisdom gives it immunity. Oh yeah, it's just pain. I don't need to react. I don't need to personalize it. I mean, imagine those of you who are getting older and noticing more stiffness in your body and other aches and pains. Imagine as we get older and older that we continue to take all of those unpleasant sensations personally. as like a personal betrayal. Somebody's out to get me. You know, God's out to get me. Or what a setup. You know, some, and you know, you see this sometimes, you know, in ourselves and each other, the kind of bitterness when we do feel like, like we're caught in that idea that life is some kind of cruel joke. Um, and it's not funny. But most people, at least in moments, learn to make peace with the natural unfolding of the aging process. In moments, right? Now why not in all moments? Like if we see how functional that is, how enlivening and liberating it is to make peace with, you know, these natural processes like aging. Why not generalize what we're learning in that 
and and actively sort of um, get on board with them. So we're we're sort of ahead of the game, and we're generalizing the insight. Like if a little space around the feelings, like not being so pushed around by feeling tone works. Well, why not being completely immune, the heart being completely immune to feeling tone? Do we, like in terms of what we feed off of in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, can we imagine this life going forward without needing to feed off of pleasantness? without needing to be sustained by pleasantness. What would that look like? So, and, you know, it would be like, well, I mean, because we could, we can begin to imagine like, well, maybe I feed off of love. The, you know, the, the generosity. And I see that happening in my mind, you know, as I see the reality of impermanence and however nice we make our house or however, you know, this gets that emotion or that gets that emotion, I realize, well, that's not really, <laughs> it's not really mine. It's not really something I can count on. So then it makes so much more sense to count on, like, actively giving everything away and finding some joy and contentment and satisfaction in doing things that will benefit others. Because you can't take that away. And so this is, this is, relates to that feeling tone like this, you know, it's a pretty primitive way of living to be basically the function or the mind's dependence on feeling tone. That de- determines like the value of our life. How little pain, how much pleasure. That, the whole, that whole way of being would be quite limited and stressful. So we need to break out of that using the teachings, using our imagination to imagine like, okay, if I'm not orienting around pleasant and unpleasant, what am I orienting around? Because it's a little bit of a leap to go to, you know, complete immunity to feeling calm. But we can begin to step away when we understand Things like generosity and kindness and commitments to non-harming as a thing of beauty, but not really a possession. You know, not, but the, the integrity of our lives has a, a kind of, uh, a different kind of pleasantness. And then the, like, uh, the highest is the joy of renunciation or the non-clinging itself. And that it relates actually to generosity. It's a gift to ourselves and to everybody else to be here in the moment, living our life, but not clinging to anything. I mean, it's it's really the ultimate act of generosity. So, studying generosity isn't just a, sort of a stepping stone. It's really, we step, like, as we realize that pleasant feeling isn't going to deliver anything but stress, obsessing around fixating on pleasant feeling, isn't really going to deliver any lasting happiness. We take up generosity. 
But that will take you the whole way because generosity is not any different than putting everything down, letting everything go, not being fixed on anything. So we have small, well actually next week, Ajahn Punadamo will be here leading the group. So um, I'll talk to him more about this, but I'm assuming we won't have small groups. But um, I think I'll ask him to talk uh, maybe a little bit about neutral because it's more complex and interesting. And uh, and it, we're already, you know, we're getting pretty far into the course. It will be week six next week. And But mostly I thought we should do question and answers. And hopefully some people, and if nobody does, I will ask about worldly and unworldly feelings just to clarify that a little bit too, why we have Ajahn in the room. But uh, as you're doing your study, uh, any questions around feeling tone and, and mindfulness generally, that would be great. So um, we'll let him talk a little bit and then we'll just have Q&A with Ajahn. And then the following week, is that the week I'm out of town? I forget. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you know. Is it going to Madison that next week? Yeah. So then I'll have a talk on feeling tone. So that's week seven. And I'll have a talk. And that will be an optional session. So people can come, sit from 7 to 7.30. At 7.30 there will be a Dharma talk. I'll, I'll try to find a really good one from Dharma Seed. And then at 8.30 at the end of the talk, um, we'll break into small groups. And people in the small groups can talk about what they thought of the talk, what came up in the talk. So that will be the following week. And then we'll have one more week together, week eight, and we'll kind of tie it all together um, that week. So that's all what's coming up. Any thoughts before we end tonight? Time for just one comment from the group. If there, Megan, do you have something? Summarizing or just rephrasing what you were saying, but I keep thinking, so the heart that is completely free from clinging wouldn't experience unpleasantness it seems because unpleasantness at least how I've observed it um, is like an emotional reaction to something that's happening well I think it's I think basically yes but it's it's really mysterious and I would I would hold it as an open question what is pain when the mind is in balance and this is an experiment that we're all completely capable of doing many, many times in, in a variety of situations. And ask that next week with Ajahn, you know, because I think it's a, it's a provocative question. It's sort of, I mean, I don't think, I, it seems to me that even when my mind is really balanced and there's a lot of wisdom, it seems that the mind still knows the difference between pleasant and unpleasant. So that discernment doesn't go away. But what the experience of pleasant is and what the experience of unpleasantness is, because it's pleasantness and unpleasantness is only relevant to a self. Right? I guess the question, then it's kind of like, well, is there suffering there? Like, is unpleasantness causing suffering? Can there be unpleasantness without suffering? Yes, absolutely. But it's really interesting. But yeah, I think absolutely. Thanks, Megan. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll send it out to the whole group so people can uh, listen to it if they don't want to come or can't come that night. Thanks, Sharon. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words.
taking a moment to appreciate our spiritual ancestors, all the women, all the men, all the people who practiced before us and gained real insight, deep understanding in their lives, the complicated lives, the busy lives, just like our lives, shared what they learned. And now we get to be the recipients of their generosity, their wisdom. So it's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can. Be sincere as, as much as possible to use our formal sitting time, study time, our daily lifetime to open up, to unpack these teachings. May this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.